0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Mahler 2. My name is Brian Lawrenson. I am uh, from KUSC. I'm literally one hour removed from uh, Pledge Drive. I swear I will not give you a 1-800 phone number in the course of the next 30 minutes unless I accidentally do, and if so, I apologize in advance. Um, This program is monumental. Um, This program is part of a big birthday celebration for this orchestra, which I know it kind of feels like we've been celebrating the centennial of the LA Phil for a really long time. And uh, well, let's be honest, they deserve it, first of all. And um, yesterday was the actual birthday. Um, The 100th anniversary of the first performance of the Los Angeles Philharmonic was October 24th. (laughs) So they had a big party and uh, three, the three uh, former and current living music directors were all here sharing the stage for a piece of music that premiered last night for orchestra and three conductors, and uh, among other things last night. And then each of those conductors, now as part of this centennial celebration for the LA Phil, has a program of their own. To conduct, and tonight's is Zubin Mehta, the uh, the music director of the LA Phil from 1962 to 1978, and uh, he actually came to this orchestra at a kind of a turbulent time in the LA Phil's history. Um, there was the music director who wasn't, and that was Sir George Schulte, who got asked to be the music director and agreed to become the music director of the LA Phil in uh, in 1960 and a year later the administration named Zubin Mehta assistant conductor without consulting Schulte and Schulte did not uh, appreciate that and so he resigned in protest before ever assuming the post. So Zubin Mehta then after another year or so was named the music director of the L.A. Phil. He was 26 years old at the time, and that actually, by the way, is the same age that Gustavo Dudamel was when he was named music director of the L.A. Phil. And until Esa Pekka Salonen spent 17 years as music director of the L.A. Phil, Zubin Mehta had been the longest tenured music director in this orchestra's history at 16 years. At the time of Mehta's music directorship of this orchestra, he was also the music director of the Montreal Symphony, and that made him the first person to hold music directorships of two North American orchestras simultaneously. All of this at age 26, absolutely incredible. So earlier this year, the LA Phil honored Zubin Mehta by naming him Conductor Emeritus of the orchestra. Mehta has also had a long association with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra. They named him Conductor for Life several years ago, and uh, he has been associated with that orchestra for 50 years, and he actually conducted his final concert there. He he has resigned his post or whatever it is. Technically, I don't know, but he he made his final appearance with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra this past Sunday conducting Mahler II, and uh, there's actually a little clip of that on YouTube, and it's absolutely um, just really emotional and beautiful. He uh, is conducting the orchestra, and at the end, on the last note of Mahler's second symphony, he just puts his hand over his heart and basically is saying thank you to the musicians. It's a really beautiful moment, and you can see it on YouTube. So, again, last night the L.A. Phil celebrated its official 100th birthday, the first concert, October 24th, 1919. Uh, Zubin, Esapeka, and Gustavo all on the program. And um, as mentioned, Salonen is the longest tenured music director. Mehta is number two. And by the time we reach the end of Dudamel's current contract in uh, 2022, he will be tied with Alfred Wallenstein at number three in terms of longest tenured music directors. So together the three of these conductors represent 43 years of music directorship of the LA film. Almost half. I can do math. So Mahler two. This is uh, an incredible work. The story of Mahler II actually begins with the story of Mahler I. And That was a symphony that was not well received at its first performance. So every composer ever since 1824 has had to grapple with the fact that Beethoven existed and created the Ninth Symphony. And every composer after Beethoven and Beethoven's Ninth had to come to terms with that. And famously, composers have struggled with that and famously, composers have dealt with that in their own very interesting ways. Hector Berlioz said, well, Beethoven told us we've got to go big or go home, so he wrote the Symphonie Fantastique for an orchestra of 130 plus. Uh, Brahms said, you can't imagine what it feels like. It's like hearing the footsteps of a giant behind you. And it took him 20 years to write his Symphony Number no. 1. Other composers just, you know, did what they could with... Uh, that uh, figure looming over them, and it wasn't until Gustav Mahler that we really see the next steps of what a symphony could be. Gustav Mahler ended up becoming the greatest writer of symphonies since Beethoven for what he did to advance the symphony as a form. So the first was not well-received at its premiere. The second performance didn't take place until four years later. And then it didn't gain any traction at that point either. But Mahler wasn't discouraged. He believed in what he was creating. And in fact, he started writing his Symphony Number no. 2 even before the first performance of his Symphony Number no. 1. He worked on this symphony from 1888 to 1894 and he wrote what would become the first movement of the symphony initially as a standalone tone poem and he called it Totenfeier or funeral rites. And when Mahler sat down with the conductor Hans von Bülow and Mahler played Totenfeier on the piano for von Bülow, von Bülow said Totenfeier made Tristan und Isolde sound like a Haydn symphony. And that's something that von Bühle would have known a thing or two about, because he conducted the premiere of Tristan und Isolde. Nevertheless, Mahler persisted. He wrote the second and third movements. He then inserted his song Urlicht, or Primal Light, from Des Knaben Wunderhorn as the fourth movement and after a long and difficult process of choosing the right text and also deciding whether or not he wanted to grapple with the legacy of Beethoven by ending a big symphony with a big choral thing, at the end, he finally wrote the finale. It's a massive, massive movement for soloists and chorus and orchestra on themes of redemption and resurrection, and Mahler knew that he would be inviting comparisons, to Beethoven and specifically the Ninth Symphony and initially that did give him some pause. He said, I had long contemplated bringing in the choir in the last movement and the only fear that it would be taken as a formal imitation of Beethoven made me hesitate again and again and again. Then Mahler said, Von Bülow died and I went to the memorial service. The mood in which I sat and pondered on the departed was utterly in the spirit of what I was working on at the time. Then the choir up in the organ loft intoned Klopstock's resurrection chorale. It flashed on me like lightning and everything became plain and clear in my mind. It was the flash that all creative artists wait for. What I then experienced had now to be expressed in sound. So the Klopstock that he's referring to is the poet, Friedrich Gottfried Klopstock, and his poem, Die Auferstehung, The Resurrection, is the beginning part of the text for the final movement of the Second Symphony. Mahler would go on to add text of his own to fill out what he wanted to write. And not long after he completed the Symphony number no. 2, Mahler said, the term symphony means creating a world with all the technical means available, and the Resurrection Symphony is most certainly an all-embracing work. It's the first of Mahler's symphonies to make use of voices and text, and that's something that of course he would go on to do in many cases, and certainly more than the first, this symphony is the piece that really set Mahler decisively on the path toward that thing that we remember him for today, the grand scale, the highly individual and uh, in a way confessional style of symphony that uh, is one of his hallmarks. Everything since this second symphony is highly personal for Gustav Mahler. He uh, said it had a story, and then he said, no, it doesn't really have a story. Well, it kind of does, but it doesn't really. He was trying to appease the two different factions of audience members. There were, it was definitely a rivalry of music should just stand on its own, and it should just be music, versus, well, music should tell a story. And uh, those two sides did not get along at all. Thankfully, uh, we've sort of come to sense our senses, and we don't really fight that much about that anymore. And I think whether or not Mahler honestly had a story in mind or didn't um, is, it's important in so far as he certainly had scenes and images in his mind as he was writing. And this symphony tells a story in a way, and the story that it tells is nothing less than the story of, of life and he talked about what he was thinking about as he wrote the symphony and so that's the basis for um, how I'm gonna move forward in the next few minutes of of showing you little bits and pieces uh, taking you through this second symphony. Um, The symphony is about an existential quest for understanding. It's about coming to terms with life's challenges and incomprehensibilities. The first movement has the tempo marking and I'll just give you the English translation. It says, with complete gravity and solemnity of expression. The first movement is an anguished cry searching for understanding and meaning and it's lofty in its goals. It is aimed at the cosmos Mahler sets the scene immediately from the very downbeat of the symphony tremolo in the upper strings and then these broken passages in the lower strings which he marks triple forte and then he also adds the indication that they should be played ferociously. Later in the movement, Mahler gives us one of his trademarks. He has a main theme that is a funeral march. And up until this point in Mahler's output, this is the most grand of his funeral marches. He did it in, the, uh, in his first symphony as well, famously he turned the, uh, the song Faire Jacques into a funeral march in his first symphony, but this one has um, certainly a lot more menace to it. And then of course we get later to the fifth symphony and the whole opening movement of the fifth symphony is also a funeral march. At the climax of the opening movement, Mahler goes even bigger. He amplifies the feeling of anguish and despair and hopelessness. We reach this tremendous and terrible climax that keeps getting more and more powerful and more and more dissonant and full of a rage. And when that rage finally boils over, you almost feel this sense of relief. And Then there's a brief pause and then Mahler immediately starts the music from the opening of the symphony again. And it's just this, I thought we were in a better place, but no, we've gone back to the beginning, crushing sort of emotional blow. at the beginning, and you may be tempted to clap there, but you've just gotten the preview, so that's not the end of anything, but it's so powerful, it's so viscerally emotional in that moment, and that's, uh, we're, still, we're still just in the opening of this symphony. The second movement he marks, very leisurely, never rush, and it's this kind of nostalgic reflection back on happier times, albeit he throws in some bittersweet moments here and there, but Mahler would call moments like this, 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 this nostalgic movements in his symphonies, he referred to them as the raisins in his cake. <laughs> And after all of the angst in the first movement, this is almost, almost a little creepy. Like it's almost too sweet, almost too nice, like what's wrong here? And we find out what's wrong later in the third movement. So the second movement sets us up for the third, which he marks in quietly flowing motion. And the third movement churns along in an almost mechanical way as a rumination on, and this is what Mahler said about this third movement, it's a rumination on the meaninglessness of life. Okay. And it actually starts a little bit ominously with the timpani and then it turns into this theme that just it really does just kind of keep going at a mechanical pace and it's this combination between a little bit of sinister sarcasm in the music and then there's a more dance-like feel to it as well that sounds a little bit like uh, Jewish folk music. And that kind of a sound in his music, the, the influence of Jewish music in Mahler's scores is something that is also a hallmark of his and it's something that was extremely brave of him to do. Um, he did it in his first symphony again before this one and uh, does it later in, in his works as well. Um, and it's him saying, I, I am unabashedly Jewish in an extremely anti-Semitic town of Vienna and in, eventually Antisemitism is what caused him to resign his post as the chief conductor of the the Vienna State Opera. He left Vienna, it got so bad, but he put it into his art anyway. He he courageously included his identity in his art, uh, even to the point where eventually he felt unwelcome because of who he was and came to New York. Mahler in the third movement foreshadows the finale of the symphony and he perhaps is trying to provide just the tiniest glimpse of sunlight breaking through the clouds of darkness. But later in the movement, every time it it just starts to burst through, he pulls it back down. He pulls us back into the darkness. And again, what he called the meaninglessness of life. And later in the third movement, he writes this big loud chord in the full orchestra and he called it a cry of despair. Others have referred to it as a death shriek. МУЗЫКАЛЬНАЯ ЗАСТАВКА And this is a direct quote, almost a direct quote, of what is going to come to open the final movement of this symphony. But before we get there, we have the fourth movement. And the fourth movement is the song Urlicht, or Primal Light. It's a song in response to that shriek. It's also a response to the idea that life is meaningless. It expresses hope in the empty, seemingless seemingly meaningless uh, dimension that Mahler is portraying in the third movement. And it is eventually leading us to a place of beauty and a place of meaning. And in fact, Mahler emphasizes that change and that transition by just having the third movement kind of melt into the fourth movement, almost like beauty and meaning are interrupting cynicism and hopelessness. All of a sudden we're in this moment of transcendence, oh little red rose, man lies in greatest need, man lies in greatest pain, how I would rather be in heaven is how the song begins. and That song is sung and then we reach the fifth movement, the biggest movement in the piece thirty-five minutes or so as long as a Haydn symphony. And this fifth concluding movement is an expression, eventually, of hope and of optimism, um, often couched in religious terms, but it's also universal um, in its message. It expresses the deep level of humanity that we all share, regardless of specific belief or creed. And it begins, though, with that cry of despair from the third movement. Uh, Mahler gives us after that a quiet statement of what will become one of the main motives for the resurrection of this finale. These lines in the horns here. Quietly hopeful, ascending lines and that it doesn't take long for that to build into music that is soaring and uplifting and heroic. but everything's not great yet. Any journey from darkness and hopelessness into light and affirmation, those journeys don't come without some struggle, right? So the music that you just heard then turns into something that is much, much more menacing. Mahler conjures up this military march and he actually called it the March of Death and it starts with a long drum roll, snares, timpani, bass drum, and even the gong involved. Of this moment in the finale. And it, it, he whips it into this frenzy, this furious paste, and every time that the light tries to break through again, he pulls us back into the darkness until finally everything breaks apart. We hear the cry of despair from the opening of this movement one more time, and then silence, a horn call offstage, more offstage brass, the trumpets, Mahler referred to this moment as the great summons, and then following that, as quietly as humanly possible, the chorus enters, singing "Aufstehen, Ja, Aufstehen, rise again, yes, rise again. And I do have to say, I boosted the levels of that by about 15 decibels. It should be much more quiet than that, and the LA Master Chorale is the best chorus in the country, so it will be. You'll barely be able to hear them. You'll barely be able to hear them. But I wanted us to be able to at least hear the music over the top of everything else, for our purposes in this room. This is the beginning of the Hymn of Resurrection. They sing, immortal life, immortal life, will he who called you give you? And a few instruments start to enter to support the singers, and then there's this magic moment as the chorus sings the word reef, or called, a single soprano begins to float away. Will he who called you give you? But the question remains, can we really hope? Everything we've experienced up to this point has told us that it's pointless to hope. That cynicism and emptiness will win in the end, so what about now? With Urgency, the mezzo soprano enters and she sings, Oh, believe, my heart. Oh, believe, nothing to you is lost. Oh, believe, you were not born for nothing. You have not lived and suffered for nothing. from trembling prepare yourself to live And that quietly ascending resurrection motive that we got just a little preview of at the very beginning of the finale, that returns now here at the end of this symphony, and that theme is now fully fully heroic. With wings which I have won for myself in love's fierce striving, I shall soar upwards to the light which no eye has penetrated. Die, shall I, in order to live, rise again. Yes, rise again. The best part is, it won't fade out in a few minutes. This music is beyond inspiring. This music is soul-stirring. This music is life-affirming. And this symphony, to me, undisputedly makes the powerful argument that no matter the darkness, no matter the despair, even when everything seems lost, it's not. We shall rise again, yes, rise again. So enjoy tonight's performance. Zubin Mehta, the LA Phil, the LA Master Chorale, Mahler's incredible Second Symphony.